Good morning from Sydney, Australia, Friday the 23rd of November. Can you believe it is, what, the second last Friday in November? Almost, almost Christmas. Almost December. Awesome. You're listening to Kevin and James and the It's a Monkey podcast. We are at episode number eight and we have a terrific show lined up for you. Later in the show, we're going to be talking with John Coral, who is the head of Neiman Marcus Direct. Now, if you're in the States, you no doubt know of Neiman Marcus, a very well-respected um, department store. If you're outside of America, you may or may not have heard of them. And they very aware of the whole e-commerce trend and I chatted, uh, John's essentially responsible for a lot of the e-commerce side of things and uh, I had a terrific chat with him about e-commerce and what Neiman Marcus are doing and some of the bigger picture questions. So we'll be talking to him a little bit later in the show and we'll be also talking to Dr. Emma Wilmot who is from the diabetes group at the University of Leicester and I spoke to her earlier in the week as well and she had such a lovely accent it was almost like a musical but we spoke to her about some new research that's come out about the health effects of sitting so long our lifestyle over the last 100 years has turned into a lot of sedentary activities we sit and work we sit and get entertained we sit and we drive And they've come up with some interesting research that hopefully can help us, um, you know, live better, healthier, longer lives. So we talk to her a little bit later in the show. But as usual, we kick off with some of the news um, that's happened this week. Um, James, you picked up some stories about some data that Google has released. Yeah, it's their, uh, I think they, it's their annual user, uh, it's their transparency report. And basically they publish uh, any kind of takedown or data requests they receive from governments or, um, or organizational or companies. So like the DCMA uh, provision for takedowns from YouTube and that kind of stuff. So they, they publish sort of the aggregate amount of data that gets released. And um, yeah, some kind of interesting, interesting figures came out. So... Um if, if a government feels that, that there's something on YouTube or some some other Google property that is detrimental to, is it the national interest? I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be breaching any laws? Uh, no, I, th- I think it does have to breach a law. Um, you know, they, they don't respond to all of them. In fact, they report the number that they, uh, you know, that they approve and they actually act on. And I mean, for example, in the case of Australia, um, I was looking at the stats for that and they, they haven't had that many. I think they've only had like 20 requests, but they've actually uh, responded to none of them. So none of them got the data access they requested. Well, I'm looking at the reports in front of me. Um, Australia, 523 user data requests. Percentage of data requests for fully or partially complied with 64%. User accounts specified 841. Um, yeah, I think I was looking at the takedown requests. I can't find removal requests, but I can't find them right now. Okay, uh, th- those are the user data requests, removal, r- removal requests. Um, let's just have a look at that one. We disclose the number of, uh, so that's a copyright. Um, and governments remove information from our service. Yeah, so for example, under Australia, they've got, uh, we received a request from a state government agency to remove a YouTube video of statements made against a number of law enforcement. We did not remove this video. Right. So it's quite interesting. Um, they also have data on sort of the, the number of companies that filed DCMA requests, so taking data out of uh, Google's index. Um, and interestingly, by far, uh, the highest company is Microsoft. Um, in fact, I think they're bigger than uh, the second, third, and fourth all combined together. So Microsoft are the biggest requester of takedown information from Google. Yeah, from Google. <laughs> um, I think it, I think it's largely uh, sort of like uh, Windows uh, torrents and that kind of stuff that they're oh, requesting okay. removed from their index. Well, let, let's have a look at the notable, um, and we'll put this link on the show notes on the it's a monkey dot com. So they've. They've put here notable observations January to June 2012, and they break it down by country. Australia is definitely one of the more boring ones where there was only one state government request. The United States, we received five requests and one court order. 
to remove seven YouTube videos for criticizing local and state government agencies, law enforcement, or public officials. We did not remove content in response to these requests. Interesting, one of them was a court order, and they didn't respond. Mm-hmm. They did not remove in, in, um, even response to that court order. Um, there's a defamation one. Let's see if there's anything else. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit of defamations. One trademark violation. The number of content removal requests we received increased by 46% compared to the previous reporting period. Mm, so, yeah, a lot of these governments are, 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 I'm just scrolling through the different country lists here, are about um, criticizing law enforcement mm-hmm. as well. So you can understand why they're sensitive to that. Um, and in the UK, it increased by 98% compared to the previous reporting period. I think, I think as governments really crank up their use of um, social media and content, it's going to become more of an issue. I know in Australia, yeah, the police have really cranked up their use of Facebook over the last year dramatically. I think almost every precinct is just pushing out on their Facebook accounts and they, they're being intelligent in the way that, that they, they're using it and, mm. and, and using it as a, a resource and almost as a crowdsourcing tool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I uh, follow them on, uh, on Facebook. In fact, I think they're probably one of the few organizations that I actually accept regular updates from because they, they appear in my stream quite often. And yeah, it's really interesting. But um, yeah, and the whole government 2.0 trend of, of governments using these tools. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's always, as we've discussed, the underlying theme of the freedom of expression versus rights responsibilities and incitement and, and things like that. Um, what else do we have in news this week? Spotify. Are you a big Spotify user? Every day, <laughs> probably probably have it on for half my working day, pretty much every day. What do you, What do you love about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got a pro subscription, so I, I really like the high quality of the the music that comes through it. Like a lot of streaming services, you just can't get that high high quality. You mean the actual um, format of the the, the high yeah, quality just, MP3? Just the, the data rate is is really high. You just don't get that in a lot of uh, services. And and the speed as well, like it's the it's the high data rate plus speed, um, and just just the ease of use of the app and the fact that you can sync it locally and and you can subscribe to playlists and you can it's got a reasonably good discovery engine. There's just so much of it. I I just like every bit of it. Yeah, I'm I'm also a massive Spotify fan. It's totally changed the way I use music. I used to download a lot from iTunes and spend quite a bit of money. But it's, uh, I'm totally, 90% of my music use now is Spotify. But they have announced that on December the 6th, they are launching some new discovery features via Twitter-style influencer following. Yeah, I think it's a, um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing they're doing. I mean, just anecdotally, I was on Facebook the other day and I saw a, an update from Sean Parker uh, pop up. Um, you know, one of the the tech founders, one of the the famous founders of um, of uh, well, Napster, everything, yeah, and <laughs> obviously uh, on the board of Spotify, and um, and it was like an effervescent playlist or something that had popped up, and it was actually really great. It was a lot of you know really interesting new music from bands I hadn't heard of before, and that kind of discovery where it's kind of a little bit curated, um, I think is fantastic, and if they can push that forwards through this. This, this new social network, I think, I think it'd be really great. I think, you know, music is the most, one of the most obvious, um, you know, content forms to be social due to the fact that it's so emotive, it's so personal, everyone's opinionated about it. And, and, and I think we're going to see a huge, if, if they get it right, it could, it could almost, just like Instagram, you know, has been such a massive growth based around photos, which are very personal and emotive and geographic based. I almost feel if Spotify can get this right, they can almost create a, a really strong social network with Instagram being the hook with the photo, almost like the song. I mean, I know you can't customize it and it's someone else's song, but there's something there's, there's something there that still hasn't been untapped with regard to um, the social graph and music. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I mean, we're only really sort of seeing the advent of these, you know, wide adoption playlist where you can kind of have pretty much any band in the world. I mean, there's obviously still some gaps in Spotify's library, but 
Um, you know, it's definitely getting to the point where you really can replace your your existing library with Spotify. Um, and, you know, that, that just means adoption is just going to keep skyrocketing, I think. So, well, great place. Yeah, look, let's let's have a look at December the 6th. Um, keep an eye on Spotify. I'll see if I can... I'll reach out to Spotify to see if I can get anyone on the show. Ever. I think they're based in Sweden, is it? Oh, really? I thought yeah. um, it was in the UK. Um, somewhere yeah, Europe, yeah somewhere they, 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 their base um, is somewhere in Europe, but it's definitely a, a great app. One of the um, my favorite Spotify-related apps, I forget what it's called, but it's the app that monitors your playlists, and if someone is coming to Australia and has a gig, it sends you an email. Oh, wow, cool. And I love that. I've used, it's really notified me to so many gigs I wouldn't have been aware of, especially since I'm into quite a lot of indie stuff and obscure stuff that's not necessarily going to be on billboards or advertised. Like um, there's an indie artist called Zola Jesus who's from the States. And um, I wouldn't have, I went to a gig a few months ago and I wouldn't have known about it if I didn't get an email. She, I think she did one night at, a, at a, one of the really small mm. side venues at the Sydney Opera House. And I, I, I definitely wouldn't have picked that up. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of value there. I mean, you can see... You can spe- see Spotify becoming, you know, increasingly valuable for artists as well. And it's kind of getting to the point where, I mean, now it's kind of the point where if you're not on iTunes, you're not going to be played. Whereas I think, you know, we're slowly moving towards a point where if you're not on Spotify, you're not, not going to get played. So, Well, what, I mean, Apple's got their competitive service, don't they? Uh, it, yeah, it's nothing like Spotify. I think the, the best they've got is something called, it's like Mix, no, not Mix Cloud match itunes match that's what it's called right and what it does is effectively it reads your your library um and any mp3s you have they don't ah, have to be have right. any protection or anything any mp3s you have then they will basically match them on the cloud so you can technically listen to them from anywhere but um yeah obviously it's quite limited you have to have actually had those mp3s somewhere in order to actually get them on itunes match so it's it's not nothing really like spotify i would imagine itunes is starting to bleed badly because of spotify at least the music side of things and the movies movie side of things is probably still doing okay yeah absolutely i think it's i think it's probably going to continuously cut into their into their profits i mean i mean it's in some ways it's obviously not going to be good for artists in the short term because they're going to make less money from music in general but i think you know Maybe not. Who knows? I mean, maybe maybe if there are more people paying for a Spotify subscription or they can make more money through ads, it could, could equal out and, you know, they could equal end up with the same amount of money. They're still not making a profit, Spotify. They're making a huge amount of money on pro subscriptions. But, I mean, one of the flaws in their business models is that um, they've got direct costs. They've got marginal costs that go up in terms of the license fees. So it's, mm. a, it's, it's a little bit hard to leverage... Um, the scale because with each song that gets played they they've got to share that with the the li- um, yeah. with the labels etc uh, i mean I, I'd, I'd imagine a certain amount of that would, would have been true for itunes as well initially i mean at the beginning it was the it was the labels that had all the power and they had you know they basically had to be on the you know they had none of the power and they had to sort of you know just take what they could get um and i think spotify is in that position right now but you know once they once they become dominant and labels you know they have to be on Spotify in order to, or one of these streaming streaming music, or all of these streaming music servers in order to be actually, uh, you know, up on the charts. Then, um, you know, I think that that revenue equation will start to switch around a bit. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in the entertainment and music space. I know Chris Sacker, who's one of the famous um, investors of Twitter and ex Google, and involved in all sorts of bits and pieces. Uber, he's one of his funds is now based in um, L.A with the view to just leveraging some of the entertainment and uh, things that are going on there. So I think I think there's still a lot of opportunity in the, the entertainment, music type of space. Um, so I think it's, it's, you know, and Spotify is definitely at the forefront of that. So interesting to see what they're going to be launched in December. I know they've launched their browser version, I believe, Spotify. Have you tried it? Uh, no, no, I haven't, no. Yeah, I also haven't tried it. It'll be interesting to see what it's like. Um, YouTube app comes to the Wii U. Yep, sure does. Um, so the Wii U is Nintendo's new console that launched, I think it was this week or late last week, um, to kind of mixed mixed reviews. Um, I mean, so the Wii was obviously their famous, famous last console, which, uh, 
you know, took the world by storm and, you know, really uh, skyrocketed a lot of the revenues of the gaming industry. Um, but after its launch, it kind of died off a bit uh, slowly. And um, I mean, it doesn't look uh, initially like the Wii U is going to do anything like um, the sales that the, the original Wii did. Um, it just doesn't have sort of the, the same sort of mass market adoption. Um, and so, you know, a lot of uh, Nintendo's consoles have sort of a gimmick. And so the Wii's, I guess, was, um, you know, that Wiimote thing where you could sort of wave your arms around and the, and the screen would sort of uh, mimic your actions. Uh, whereas the Wii U has uh, has a sort of a little uh, tablet, I guess, and so what you do is you have obviously your 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 game or your content up on the screen, but then you also have a little small screen on your lap, and they're sort of playing between that interchange between the big screen and the small screen, so uh, working together, and um, and there's a little bit of interesting stuff happening in the entertainment area. Um, so both Netflix and uh, YouTube now have apps out for the Wii U, and um, uh, the and uh, I think in both cases you can actually play either on the big screen or in, in your lap. And so it's basically kind of making uh, making it as if you've kind of got two screens. So if you have people over and they want to watch something else or you want to have another thing running in on a separate screen, you can play it on your, on your little tablet. Um, I mean, debatably, you know, it's nothing you can't already do if you had an iPad and you put it onto like a streaming music channel or something. But um, it, it's still a bit of an interesting interesting area. It's kind of moving towards this um, this period of time where sort of devices kind of interconnect and you can sort of be playing something on any location simultaneously. Um, and I think that's kind of the the vibe they're going for. You can either have it up on your big screen or just, um, uh, you know, just easily move it down to your small screen if you want to go into the kitchen or whatever. So, you know, it's a bit different. I'm interested. I mean, I know you're a big gamer and... Um I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> it doesn't interest me enough. <laughs> I'm interested in the gamification. I, I, I'm really fascinated by, you know, coming from a little bit of an enterprise angle. And I, I think there's a huge amount of innovation still left to, 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 link, to, link, the, to link the games with the, with the enterprise sort of world. And that, that's where I'm quite... I, I, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm almost scared of... Um, gaming because i'm just I'm, I'm looking for less things to get hooked on and spend my time on but uh, i think we'll cover some um, yeah i know i know it is you know a lot of people are interested in it and and I, I am quite interested in it but interesting to see yeah the development and there's a lot of money in that industry sort of which driving all of this innovation yeah definitely it's uh i think uh, revenues are bigger than movies now it's getting very close so it's very it's a big industry Friday, 23rd of November, you're listening to James, Peter and Kevin Garber on episode number eight of the It's a Monkey podcast. We are now pretty much going to settle in. We're going to try settle into every fortnight, which is a word I believe they don't use in the US, James. Oh, really? Fortnite. Yeah. Oh, we should probably update some of our copy on our website. Uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think, um, I think think it's bi-weekly or... Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, every two weeks on Friday, we're going to try... We feel that that's a realistic schedule for us to push out these podcasts. It takes a little bit of time for us to set up the interviews and, and carve out time for us to do it. But we, we are committed to um, doing them. Um, I think our production value has gone up a little bit, hopefully, James, over the... <laughs> the the few weeks absolutely it sounds it sounds a lot better when I play them back I I'd like to get a new theme song written and maybe mm. some new ads um, you know freshened up and diversify that's that's on my list to do heavy, heavy metal theme theme song I d yes <laughs> look, not, your, not your kind of stuff what, what's your power chord skills <laughs> like you know? bringing my guitar if I had one. <laughs> Remember, you can tweet us at Monkey Podcast, and we're on Facebook as well as Monkey Podcast, or you can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. We love to hear from you. We know that you are listening because our stats tell us so. Um, two biggest countries, America and the U. Uh, I nearly said America and the USA. Actually, it's Thanksgiving now in the States. So ha happy Thanksgiving if you're sitting in the US. We love you guys. And uh, um, I think it's a great holiday. I think I think we should have a Thanksgiving day. <laughs> it is pretty cool, yeah. yeah it's, uh, I, I love the concept of it. Um, so we know you're listening, so drop us a message. So after the break, we're going to be talking to Dr. Emma Wilmot from the Diabetes Group at the University of Leicester and um, some new research that's 
they've come out with, so stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Thanks for joining us. Now, in our office, I mean, we work in the internet industry, building web apps and uh, web development, and we also, uh, um, you know, do a lot of different online things. And we spend a lot of time sitting in front of our computers here. I spend a lot of time sitting in front of my computer, and I have for a long time. And intuitively, it has always bothered me. I try to keep fit. I try to exercise. I try to walk where I can. But I was interested to see that there was some um, research that came out recently that actually did confirm that sitting for long periods is bad for your health. I mean, we all have intuitively known that, but some um, it has been been quantified now so I thought I would um, speak to someone that was actually involved with the research so on the line I have Dr. Emma Wilmot who's from the diabetes research group at the University of Leicester Dr. Wilmot thank you very much for joining us on the podcast thank you very much for having me Doctor, do you want to tell us, just to give us a snapshot overview of the research and what the findings were yeah, we basically performed a systematic review, which basically involves going out and doing a very thorough search of all the literature that's out there to try and identify all the studies that linked excess sitting time with any sort of hazardous health outcomes. And we identified 18 studies from across the world, and we put all the results of these together, and we managed to identify uh, excess sitting doubles the risk of diabetes, increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, of cardiovascular death and of all-cause death. So this is quite a striking finding, but the most important message from our research was that actually this is independent of the amount of exercise that you performed. So even if you're somebody who goes to the gym at the end of the day for half an hour to meet the physical activity guidelines, if you're sitting for the rest of the day, then your health is still at risk. And I think that's quite an important message, especially given the modern society that we live in now, which involves a lot of sitting. I found that a very interesting finding. I mean, I live in Sydney, Australia, which is is a very health-conscious city. And um, at the beach and at the parks, um, people really, you know, they go to their boot camps and they exercise really hard. But for the rest of the day and the rest of the evening, um, a lot of them would probably be sitting. And and the research is just showing that... um, that just that that just isn't good enough. You're still um, you're still exposing yourself to developing to, to to these risk factors. Exactly, exactly. It's quite a, a worrying message because I think if you think about the opportunities for sitting now, they're just so frequent. Whether it's a long commute in the car to work, or whether it's sat at your desk all day working on the computer, or coming home and sitting down in front of the television. It's actually quite difficult to get away from all these opportunities to sit down all the time. It's really, really difficult, and um, I think you know because computers and mobile phones and and it's they, they they're so compelling. They just they, they, I've got a friend who doesn't use the computer much, and her husband's always on the laptop, and she just says to me, Kevin, I just don't understand what just draws him in constantly. And I think it has become such a a window to a universe um, that it that it is really hard. I I have been interested to see that in. San Francisco and Silicon Valley and some other parts of the world that standing desks and treadmill desks are actually catching on a little bit. Yes, exactly. And the professor that I work with, Professor Melanie Davies in Leicester, is concerned about the amount of time her workforce spends sitting. And she's actually recently invested in some standing desks. So the researchers now have the opportunity throughout the day to move their desk up and stand and the feedback from them is actually it's quite nice just being able to stand up and answer some emails while you're standing. It's a nice break. Um, and you can then control how long you're standing for and how long you're sitting for. And just that change of posture, you know, helps with sort of bad backs and things some people are reporting. So I think it's really a change in mindset. And I think the biggest thing that I'd like to get out of the research that I've published is just to increase awareness of how much time you spend sitting. Because that's another thing. If you think about how much exercise you did yesterday, 
you could probably add that up quite quickly and give me an answer. But if I asked you how many hours did you spend sitting yesterday, that's mind-boggling. It's really difficult to estimate it. So it's just really to get people to be more aware about the time that they're spending sitting and really starting to think about opportunities where they can just stay on their feet a bit longer if possible. I'm quite scared to add up the number of hours that I stand sitting, but what I do, f- uh, sorry, that I that I spend sitting, what I do find interesting is that I try go regularly to um, some yoga retreats, etc., and um, spending a few days being really active, um, I always land up feeling really fantastic, and that just really makes me wonder if it's not only just getting away and having a change of environment, but it's actually just my body just moving throughout the day a lot more. Yes, I mean, there is good evidence that physical activity helps protect against depression, and it definitely has an impact on our psyche. Um, And I think the message overall has to be just being as active as you can. There's no doubting the fact that physical activity is important for health. So the more of that, more exercise you can do, the better. But if you're not got so many opportunities to do exercise, then just trying to stand up and move around will make a difference. So just another thing is we've all been so focused on making sure we get the 30 minutes of exercise to meet the recommendations. But that's a bit of an oversight, really, because... We need to look at the other 23 and a half hours in the day. We need to really look at how active we are over the 24-hour period rather than just focusing on achieving one small bout of exercise in that day. And I think also one of the points you make as well is that society has become very fixated on obesity um, versus um, you know, being healthy and active. And actually it is possible to be obese and fit or overweight and fit and to yeah. be actually lean and unfit. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, but we're so focused on obesity because it's something that you can see immediately. But actually how fit you are has a larger bearing on um, health outcomes and the obesity. So, you know, really trying to get as fit as you can is important. I, you know, I think it is a mindset change. I know I've, I've tried the last couple of years to really be aware of when I can walk instead of take lifts, etc. And um, one area I find that, that I think is a real opportunity for a lot of people that travel, and I travel quite a bit, is when you're waiting at the airport. I just literally, I have my, I have my headphones on, I'm listening to podcasts or music, and I just literally walk up and down the airport for hours and hours and hours, as opposed to, I'm, I, I am sometimes quite tent, tempted to sit and just read, and, but before a, a, a long flight, I really force myself to, to walk around. So there are, I think, opportunities that, we, that we're just not used to seeing in terms of staying active. Yeah, and I think, that's, I mean, we've done a study recently in Leicester where we recruited almost 200 young people up to the age of 40 who were at risk of diabetes, and we put them through a structured education program to try and reduce their sitting time and educate them about the hazards of sitting. And first of all, the main thing for them was that this is a new message. They hadn't thought about reducing their sitting before, but actually once they started thinking about it, they came up with lots of different ideas about how they could do that. But I think it really needs to be personalised into what you find acceptable. For instance, some people were saying, right, every time my phone rings, I'm going to stand up and I'll just move around while I'm on the telephone. Um, and for some people, that would work. For some people, it wouldn't. Other people were saying, right, when I'm watching television and adverts coming on, I'm going to make a concentrated effort to stand up and move around. And again, that will work for some people, but some people will just think, no, that's definitely not for me. Other people just stand up and do the ironing, do some more housework rather than taking to the couch straight after a meal. And actually, <laughs> while I'm on the subject of meals, there have been a group in Australia and a group in America who have demonstrated that if you stand up and move around after a meal, there's a 25% reduction in your glucose levels after a meal compared to if you just stay sitting. And that's so, a good thing, I assume. you sit... Re- reducing yeah, your glucose levels. Yeah, against diabetes, yeah. So lower glucose levels help protect against diabetes. So... Literally, standing up and moving around after a meal has an immediate effect on how your body processes glucose and could potentially protect you against diabetes. So, um, yeah, the evidence is really building, and I think we're at an early stage in, in the research into sitting time. And I think as the evidence builds, we're eventually going to get to a point where we think 
we need to really think about changing the way that our environments are structured around us to allow us to sit less. I think um, I've always wondered in terms of eating meals, what about eating meals whilst you're standing? Because I, I actually tend to do quite a lot of that. I find it quite comfortable and natural. And I've had a few people say to me, it's not healthy to eat while you stand. Um, is it? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that, again, is down to personal preference. I would imagine that the majority of people would enjoy sitting down to eat a meal. But if you enjoy being up and about while you're eating, then I think that's perfectly acceptable. I'm not aware of any evidence of harm either way. Um, But I think if that works for you and it helps reduce your sitting time, then go for it. I think you bring up an important point in terms of changing the environment. I'm looking out onto our office right now, and we have a table tennis table, which no one uses and one of the reasons i put it in was to try give people a break the staff to 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 have a break but i think i can totally see how it can be restructured in terms of more adjustable desks and treadmills and um you know i do hope that 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 happens um you know it's a it's a bit crazy that we we offsetting a lot of the benefits with modern society by by introducing new problems yeah exactly and I think, if you think back to when, because um, a lot of people said, oh, sitting bad to your health, this is so obvious, you know, why you bothered doing this research. But I actually think back to when the first studies came out showing that smoking was hazardous. Of course, people thought, well, that's obvious. You know, we, of course, it's going to be bad for your health. But look at the mind shift in terms of smoking that we've gone through. I mean, in the UK now, you're not allowed to smoke in public places. If I said that to somebody 20 years ago, they would not have believed that that would have happened. And I think it's a drip, drip effect, building the evidence base, getting the message across about the harm. I think eventually, hopefully, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll have so much evidence about the hazards of sitting and we'll be so aware of it that, you know, employers, government agencies will be forced into making small changes to the way that we lead our lives to encourage us to stand up and move around more to protect us in the longer term. Well, I think, um, as usual, what might kick started is um, a legal action if someone does get some sort of health concern and um, then they actually sue their company and that, that, might, um, that might sort of kick start things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although I suppose it would be quite difficult to prove, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, you yeah. don't, do, do you don't you spend 24 hours working. Do you have a standing desk? Or an adjustable desk, I should say? I don't. We're in the process of moving um, departments, so I'm in the old department, uh, but hopefully I'll be moving up to the new offices soon, which will have standing desks. But most of, so a lot of my colleagues have the standing desks, and they, they quite enjoy it. Oh, interesting. Dr. Emma Wilmot from the Diabetes Research Group at the University of Leicester, really appreciate your time. Um, I don't think it's useless research. I think to put some numbers and some 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 real results and that you know we, we can work with is very useful. And um, hopefully, you know, the the spirit of um, of working hard is 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 not to destroy ourselves in the process. So I appreciate your time and um, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good morning. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye. James, you know what I found interesting during that interview, and especially with regarding our previous conversation, um, I was talking to Dr. Emma Wilmot about her research. Essentially, it's almost like a user interface problem, right? I mean, if we... Motivational problem. Well, no, I mean, we our user interface at the moment is a keyboard and a screen. Oh, right, yeah. Right. Now, if we had some crazy, you know, three-dimensional environment that we gestures with our hands and our legs and, you know, that, that somehow you... Because our bodies are designed to have a variety to, of movements. That's what they're designed to run a little bit, walk mostly, sit down a little bit, stand a little bit. You know, it's built for that diversity. Too much of anything, too much of standing messes you up, too much of running messes you up, too much of... And that's sort of essentially the issue. And if we had a UI... You almost need a, a device that sort of monitors how long you've been sitting down because obviously it's not too bad to sit down for a certain period, but then, you know, if you're sitting down for an hour or something, it would just, like, raise itself off and then you have to stand up for the next hour or 
something that kind of forces you to to have sort of the the change in patterns yeah that could that could get that that ratio right Mm -hmm. um and so i think you know again the more we talk in these shows the more i just see there's just innovative opportunities (laughs) everywhere obviously you need a big a big a, a big bank account to experiment and to get all and iterate and to get all these things right yeah um, I quite like the theme, though, of, of you know some of the medical touches in the show. Um, I'm I'm trying to get on the show some um, Silicon Valley biotech company that does some smart pills, which are quite interesting. So they're actual smart pills. Yeah, they're actually pills you swallow with some technology inside them that monitor all, right. all sorts of stuff. And uh, we'll find out more about it. Um, Ooh, um, cool. On that show, but I I really quite like the. The, the whole technological evolution within medicine, I feel that that's a really interesting area. Speaking of future guests on the show, um, actually in the next podcast or in two podcasts time, we got a, a very special guest um, who's agreed to be on the podcast. I'm very excited to announce that Phil Leiben, who's the CEO and founder of Evernote, has agreed to be interviewed on the It's a Monkey podcast. Evernote, of course, has probably about a squillion users and its valuation is about 10 squillion. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, it is a really interesting product that's done really interesting well and, and the, the, the business story behind it is, is fascinating. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Really, really interested to hear what he has to say. Very interesting guy um, and really nice guy. And uh, he, he's agreed to to talk on our show. So stay tuned in the next couple of podcasts. We're still just locking in times. Um, and coming up after the break, we're going to talk to John Coral, who's from Neiman Marcus Direct. And we'll be talking to him about all things e-commerce. Um, you're listening to Kevin James and the It's a Monkey podcast, Friday, 23rd of November. Please tweet us. Please email us. Stay with us. We'll be talking all things e-commerce after the break. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey to at manage flitter to receive a one month free budgie account you're back with kevin garber on the it's a monkey podcast where we talk about everything relating to the tech economy now one of my friends one of my female friends the other day got a package and it was clothes she's very much into fashion and it was an item of clothing from the u.s and i said to her wow you you know you order from overseas and she said well a lot of the the u.s e-commerce stores these days i have uh, you know shipping to australia it's become a lot easier so i thought i'd bring on um, an expert on one of the leading um leading fashion brands department store brands in the u.s and talk about some of these issues relating to e-commerce and fashion and and high-end fashion so on the line from dallas texas um, I'd like to welcome John Coral, who's the president of Neiman Marcus, the direct side of things. So he's responsible for the catalog and the e-commerce. Good morning and good afternoon to you, I believe, John. <laughs> good morning. Thanks for joining Excited us. Excited to be here. Anything I can do to help uh, talk about our situation, and uh, I'm ready to go. Well, I'm looking at your Wikipedia entry, and it says you have 42 locations, um, but obviously you on the what I feel is the really interesting side of things, on the e-commerce side of things. Tell us a little bit about um, about the tentacles of your e-commerce operations. Yeah, um, right now it's about 20, 21% of the total business. We're still very store-oriented. Um, the company started over 100 years ago in Dallas, Texas. We've been operating catalogs, so the original part of the direct business for, I believe it's over 80 years. So e-commerce is relatively new, but in the luxury space, we're one of sort of the elder statesmen operating our e-commerce site for about 12 years. So we have a nice rich history. We're more highly penetrated than most of our other um, American peers in the luxury fashion area. And we continue to grow at a nice clip. Um, we just announced that online is growing at about 13%. So a lot of good challenges out there, but a, a lot of fun and a lot of new opportunity, obviously, internationally. And then uh, obviously expanding our business here in the U.S. as well. 
21% uh, as a function, a uh, percentage of your revenue, uh, I think by Australian standards, that's pretty high. I know a lot of the traditional retailers here like Harvey Norman and David Jones, etc. Um, just speaking off the top of my head, but I've, I, if I remember that they uh, recall correctly, their percentage is a lot lower than that. Yeah, the, the same here. The same tr is true here in the U.S. I mean, most of them around ten uh, percent. One of my previous employers was William Sonoma in the home business. They're they're by far the most penetrated. You know, at almost fifty percent and over fifty percent of the profits. So, it, it's a great challenge. What I love is the companies that really understand the direct business from a catalog perspective have the wherewithal to recognize that you know the online business is very data driven. You have to satisfy your customer in the same way that you do this in the store, but at the same time you could apply a lot of the math you know around conversion and making sure you have the right product assortment to suit the online customer needs etc so i've been uh, very lucky to you know come from silicon valley and then spend quite a bit of time with a luxury retailer like neiman marcus i've been here about 18 months and you know things are up and to the right well one thing i'd like to ask you is you know, going back to the 90s when e-commerce kicked off and Amazon got things going, what has really changed in terms of the online shopping experience? Has How far has it moved from still just being, I guess, an online catalog with clicking through and viewing products? Is there anything that you guys are doing that someone today and someone in 1997 would look at and go, wow, things have really changed in terms of the online experience? Yeah, I think it's the uh, customer. The customer expectations have changed dramatically. It doesn't matter if you know Zappos uh, made a lot of change here um, in the U.S. as it relates to free shipping. So now free shipping has sort of become a, a default standard expectation for a lot of people. Uh, site personalization. I like to say a lot of websites are a one-size-fits-none type of situation. You know, the customer expects to go to a site. They're going to talk to them only about relevant products. They're going to inspire them where they need to. They're going to educate them, and then they're going to help them through the conversion process and, the, you know, least amount of friction possible to complete the transaction. And the product's going to arrive on their doorstep in a, in a timely manner for a good price point. I mean, it, the overlying concept of value and service is no different than it has been before, but there's just a lot of lot more software tools and delivery options available that probably people in 1997 weren't even thinking about. Are you guys looking at any type of virtual reality modeling type situation where people upload their photos and try things on and, you know, anything on that side of things to actually change the actual browsing experience, so to speak? Uh, never say never. I wouldn't say that that's one of my highest priorities right now. I, I definitely follow things like Pinterest and Instagram and all those kind of things very closely. And I, I'm absolutely amazed the amount of effort and energy people do put into you know configuring outlet um, outfits and all those in their closet and putting together the perfect wardrobe. That is very inspiring to us. But you know. There's a place for editorial, and you know, in some ways, we had to be very editorial and very much, you know, asserting our position as fashion experts. But at the same time, people just need an, a venue to play. So, you know, it, it's a matter of finding that perfect balance. And we're not at the point now where we need, you know, sort of the online equivalent of a magic mirror where you can see yourself in all the outfits that we create. But again, in 1997, they weren't thinking about a lot of things we just discussed. I'm sure the same will be true here in just a couple of years. Are you able to reveal to us what are your biggest traffic drivers? What sites are your biggest traffic drivers? Yeah, I mean, Google remains an amazing partner. Pinterest is definitely up in the amount of traffic. You know, we have some things that work and don't work as well for Facebook, just like everybody else. But uh, between Google, paid search, natural search, display advertising is getting much more sophisticated. You know, somebody comes to the site and, you know, we do remarketing to make sure that the products and categories that are most meaningful for them, and, you know, like I said, the editorial that's the most meaningful for them is presented to them in a timely manner and uh, bring them back to the site. And, you know, people don't like talking about it, but email is still a very important tool for, you know, luxury fashion consumers. And I was uh, really impressed to see that you guys do offer um, some discounted shipping to Australia. Yep. Yeah, it's part of the launch. We, we launched our international program on October 31st. And what we, it was sort of a soft launch. Then a few days we kicked in the 1995 um, U.S. shipping abroad 
um, you know, we supplement the shipping in partnership with the company 51 to make sure that you can get the product, you know, semi affordably. And, you know, again, back to that friction, I don't want the shipping cost to be the only reason that we can't grow our international business. You know, there's some pricing and promotions and things that we can only do, you know, in our native market. But at the same time, we're, we're learning our way into this and making sure that we represent the brands that we um, hold their partnership so dear, do it the right way. And what about mobile? Everyone's talking about mobile, mobile, mobile. Do your customers buy a lot on mobile? What's your mobile strategy? Do they just browse on mobile? Um, we had a, I've been here, like I said, about 18 months, and we've turned off our mobile site a little over a year ago. It just wasn't meeting the customer expectations. You know, there was six or seven clicks before you actually got to look at any product. And I, and I said that just simply wasn't good enough. And ironically, today, we're going out in a very small way with the launch of our new mobile website that's very much um, driven by search and more like this and a very cut-down version of checkout. So again, my goal is to, you know, provide stimulus and get the friction out of the way to complete the transaction. So we definitely think mobile is a big part of our domestic and international strategy. It's just a matter of it has to be done in the same way and same quality that, you know, we put marble in the entryway of our floors. Could it be done more affordably? Yes, but it, it, it's just not our way. And it's not what our customers have come to expect from us. So, you know, until we can get a mobile site where, you know, it, it truly reflects our brand statement, we're not going to go big into mobile. Um, mobile internationally is not something that we're doing today, but um, I don't see why we couldn't do that in the near future. You know, are our customers using it? Yes, a significant percentage of our email is, is being opened in uh, mobile phones today. The same can be said for iPads. And quite frankly, iPads are you know one of the favorite and highest converting mediums that we have in terms of customer usage and adoption. So have you optimized, do you have an iPad app or have you optimized any of your you know, applications for iPad specifically? Um, right now we have not modified the site to have an iPad specific app but, or an iPad specific site, but we will be making modifications. We're, we're just very conscious of finger spacing and things like that that no one would have even been talking about six to 12 months ago within Neiman Marcus. We're, we're, we're correcting that mistake and making sure that there's appropriate spacing on the native site. But at the same time, we recognize that apps are an important part of the you know, customer expectations. And we'll have one of those launched, let's call it you know, May or June of next year. So big emphasis in the mobile and app space. But at the same time, I don't want to launch an app that doesn't fulfill the brand promise. I think a lot of people have launched apps that are, let's call it 60% of the functionality or even 80% of the functionality of their regular website. I think if you can't do the 100% and some additional value, it just shouldn't become another push vehicle where I can you know, do little pop-ups when there's an auction going on or something like that. It has to be more meaningful in terms of the customer value exchange. And what are you guys, I mean, we're always interested to know how the big guys manage their social media um, elements. I mean, these days, it's obviously, you know, it's a massive job to manage the, you know, your, your Pinterest and your Facebook and your Twitter. Um, do you guys have a team? Do you have an agency? Um, you know, what, what do you guys yeah. do to manage that side of things? Yeah, I mean, with the different brands, Bergdorf Goodman has a couple of people in New York and an agency they work with. Neiman Marcus has, you know, three or four, maybe even five people here now that uh, keep up with social media. They, they do an excellent job. To your point, it's it's not just, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Tumblr, you know, Instagram. It could go on and on and on. And, you know, they have very different expectations, each of these, you know, social media outlets. So, the, the team really has to stay on their toes. And it's, it's funny, it's, it's a nice balance between innovative products or behind the scenes. And, you know, it, it's, I'm sitting there at Fashion Week, so a very new experience for me, for somebody who grew up in technology. And there I am taking video with my iPad and then sending it out five minutes after the show up to the folks who run social media so that they can put it on the site in a timely manner or on our, you know, our blog. And, you know, 57th and 5th is the one that um, Bergdorf Goodman has, and then we have the NM Daily blog on our website. So we're constantly trying to push some of that behind the scenes or really cutting-edge stuff that we can't necessarily get in as timely a manner in the true editorial version of our site. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, th I think you guys are in, in, in a space where, you know, speaking to, I, I did a, a snap survey of three of my female friends yesterday and <laughs> one had heard, and obviously we're in Australia, so things are very different. I understand in the States, you know, you're, you're a household name brand essentially, but even though you're a premium product, yep. but um, out of the three female friends, 
One had never heard of you. One had heard about you guys and not quite sure what you guys were about. But then the third one was very passionate and, and was a, a huge brand evangelist and had ordered from you before, so, which was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's important. I mean, uh, there is the reason that we're doing the 1995 U.S. shipping. There's the reason that we've been very slow to even launch internationally. You know, the key for me is doing things right and then iterating on them from there. You know, people have always been able to call, you know, our uh, domestic toll number and, you know, place an international order. And we've been doing quite some, uh, quite a bit of business through that over the years. But this is the first chance we've been able to knock down the friction in partnership with 51 to expand our brand. You guys are really fortunate to have David Jones down there in Australia. And it's just just a great company. As somebody who lived in Australia for a couple of years, I, I love shopping there, you know. So what I didn't want to do is launch a half-baked solution internationally. So, you know, it is still in English, so that plays really well to um, Australia, UK, et cetera. But we also allow you to, you know, transact in your local currency. And, you know, as we localize and, you know, do product mixed assortment, I hope we'll get the second and third friend of yours to be more familiar with our brand. But, you know, one out of three is not bad considering, you know, we only have 42 stores here in the U.S., you know, and we just need to leverage the the understanding that we do. There's a lot of expats, U.S. expats, that'll hopefully help with the distribution of information. And and then you know, like you said, one of your three friends, if they have a good enough experience, then uh, you know we should have a good net promoter score, so to speak. And then they can push that on to the other two friends. And before you know it, we have a, quite a viable and quite a large and growing international business. You know, it won't happen overnight, but we're going to invest for the long haul here. You know what would make a great site would be creating an online fashion site targeted at men who hate clothes shopping. <laughs> if it was easy to do and we could market it, you know, that would be fantastic. The men's fashion category continues to grow, you know, north of 20% year over year. So it's probably their wives buying, buying for them, though. They, they, they yeah, no, no debate there. I, I'm not even sure I'd be presentable most days if it wasn't for my <laughs> wife. So, um, it's, it's just a matter of making sure that you can find that demographic, you know, find them in a way, speak to them in a way that they're comfortable with. You know, you know, I wear some really conservative clothes day in, day out, but I'm also inspired by, you know, the really cool cutting edge socks from Paul Smith. And you're like, ooh, I need to have those or the Prada men's shoes with flowers on them. Those are, those are just some amazing things that we need to get out there. And, you know... Here in the U.S., there's companies like Trunk Club that are delivering, you know, large trunks. You say, this is the type of style I wear to work. This is what I wear for casual. And boom, they send some things over your way. I want so, that. I really gonna... want that today because I, 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 <laughs> I, I really like looking good and wearing nice clothes. But the whole shopping experience for me is just – it's just way too hard. It's broken. It's just ready to be disrupted somehow with some sort of mixture. And then I think that Trunk Club – I'm going to look that up. That sounds like a fantastic idea. No, it's one of those innovative ideas that, you know, sometimes it just, quite frankly, takes a startup to try something new. And then if it catches on, we go from there. I mean, you know, we woke up one day and saw that guilt was really taking on a lot of, you know, high-end fashion customers. And now what we have is called the Midday Dash. We do that, you know, three or four times a week where we buy, you know, some really great um, product, you know, from the top tier designers out there and then offer it at a discounted price. And, you know, we see traffic just spike around those events because we've created this, you know, sense of urgency and fun around shopping. So there, there's always going to be innovation. Sometimes it's going to come from, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, and sometimes it's going to come from Silicon Valley, and sometimes it's going to come from retailers like me. So Do- I just, I just want to see can th- things continue to improve and grow. Do the pure play online e-commerce sites, uh, is that what keeps you up at night? Uh, all the above. I mean, my, my competition can come from two guys in a garage in Silicon Valley. It can come from a wonderful company named Nordstrom up in Seattle so, or my friend, um, friends in Saks or, you know, Net-A-Porter, my Teresa. There's pure plays like that. There's, you know, omni-channel um, retailers. The folks are constantly innovating in various areas. It doesn't matter if there's an online fit module, a new approach to shipping. Those are the kind of things that, you know, you don't want to get caught behind, right? So you have to continue to up your game. And that's what, quite frankly, gets my head up off the pillow and really excites me about retail. I'm sorry you don't, you don't like shopping as much as maybe I do, but, you know, 
retail is one of those few industries where you get immediate gratification sure. and you can really understand if something's working or not. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that we're experimenting our customers, quite the opposite. Our goal is to make sure that we, you know, deliver on our core, core values, but at the same time, try new things to even further supplement that experience as, you know, as I said, customer expectations continue to move up and up as they should. What, what are your top um, five countries, um, particularly on the online side of things? Yeah, um, we, we deliver from our core site, not only to the U.S., but also to Canada. And we have a partnership with a company called Prestige to, in Japan. So those three are sort of the incumbents. Right. Um, number four, as you can imagine, I'm looking at it right now, is Australia, Hong Kong, UK, and there's also some other surprise countries. You know, with with English being the you know sort of a default global language these days, there's quite a few countries that even though we only offer in English today, that they're they're able to complete the transactions. But it's great to see the business boom in Australia, Hong Kong, UK, etc. So, well, I'll definitely um, spread the word um, across some of my friends. So uh, I've been talking to John. Carl, who's the president of uh, Neiman Marcus Direct, responsible for catalog and e-commerce. John, I really appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing some of the innovations and um, you know listening listening to the experiences of my friend and friends. And hopefully, uh, maybe we can catch up in a few month a few months and hear what you're up to. Yeah, completely. I mean, I came to Neiman Marcus because our values are anytime, anyplace, anyhow. And that's never been more true with, you know, 24-7, 365, global reach via the website, phone, chat, etc. It's, it's just a really exciting time to be working in this area. So thank you very much for your time. John, when you organize that site for men who hate shopping and you get that right. <laughs> I, uh, you'll be my first call, I promise. You, you, you'll have my credit card number on file. And um, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's something in that. And I can sense I can sense in your blood, you know, from your Silicon Valley, you got, you, you, you've got a, a, a startup sensibility. So may, maybe you can build a startup within your, your corporate there. Yeah, w- once I have a little bit extra time after the day job, I'll take care of that for you, okay? <laughs> Thanks, John. Appreciate your time. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. James, the one thing that came out of that interview that really excited me clearly was the Trunk Club. I'm, look, <laughs> I'm looking at that site now. What a fantastic idea. Trunkclub.com. Become the best dressed guy in the room. Um, your own personal stylist, a dedicated style expert who works directly with you, will pack your trunk with hand-selected clothes. The huge variety of high and men's casual where we've got everything you need to look great, free shipping and no fees. So what I haven't been through the site in detail, but what I understand what they do is that they just they they send you a trunk of stuff that's gonna fit and there's a high chance that you're gonna like. Yeah, that that's that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure many men have the same problem uh, that uh, that I do as well. I just clothes shopping, just not my thing. I think, you know, he mentioned a few times, you know, his job is to remove friction. I think, you know, that's one area where I think e-commerce has still got a long way to go. When I was in the Bay Area a few months ago, using Uber really drove home about the frictionless purchasing experience that just solves a problem at one button. You push the Uber button, works out where you are, tells you when the next cab is, it's got your credit card on file, they arrive in a few minutes, you get out your cab, you don't touch anything else, it's done. Now, clothes almost as a guy, that's almost what we want. We <laughs> almost want to push a button yep. and just go, clothes. New ones tomorrow. Yep. Yeah, and we don't want to think about it, but we want it to fit with our style. I mean, Trunk Club seems to be high-end, which is not really my thing, but we want it to be within our style and one button push and boom, it's done. Yep. So um, that, that was quite interesting, but a few, I mean, a really fantastic interview. He's clearly... Um, a smart guy at the top of his game. Um, what was interesting, I found where he definitely mentioned that email was still driving. I think people forget about good mm. old um, fashioned email. Yep. Not as sexy as, as the other um, platforms, but definitely works. Well, it's the one guaranteed driver. Like, you know, it's going to reach your, well, unless it get mar- gets marked spam, you know, it's going to reach your customer. Whereas, you know, Facebook, Twitter, you know, you're not guaranteed even if they do like you or subscribe to you that you're actually gonna they're actually gonna receive your updates. So, yeah, it's still definitely uh, it's it's um, more direct. It's more akin to the direct mail as opposed to this, you know, tied into Google, uh, Facebook's algorithms, etc. Yeah. That was quite interesting. Also, the iPad, you know, the iPad's definitely um, changing. 
consuming mm. habits, whether it's um, purchasing habits, consuming media habits, it's, it's obviously on their radar. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense given they're, you know, uh, they do a lot of fashion, uh, high-end fashion stuff. If, you know, it's the kind of place where, you know, the iPad's kind of perfect for sort of holding something in your hand and sort of looking at it and browsing through stuff. And you can, you can see that being a great fit for them. Do you buy clothes online? No, I, I don't personally. Um, Zara, my fiance, does a lot. She actually does quite a lot of clothes shopping online. Yeah, my female friends also, I mean, they, I'm amazed what they buy online mm. and everything from vintage stuff to Well, you can just get, get stuff so, so cheaply compared to what you can get in the stores most of the time and, um, and so, so much larger range as well. Yeah, big difference. I think I think this trunk club um, probably someone listening who's uh, in Australia that might think it's a, it's a terrific <laughs> idea. So um, let yeah. us know when you start it. Yeah, look, yeah, please let us know when you start it, or in fact, if you're interested in starting it with us. But yeah, look, I mean, physical the physical goods startups always is not our sort of area. We more into the software as a service type. I mean, you, they've got all the logistics and returns, and they've got an extra area. A link in the chain there. Um, anyway, I think that's about it for this week. You've been listening to episode eight of the It's a Monkey podcast with Kevin Garber and James Peter. Stay tuned in a couple of next episodes. Phil um, Lieben from Evernote, CEO and founder, has agreed to be interviewed, which should be a terrific interview, um, either in the next podcast, either episode nine or ten. We're still working out the days. Email us, tweet us, stay in touch with us. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.